Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Welcome everyone, you are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi. Lent is upon us, and we're here to talk about fasting. Zellwin, how are you? I'm doing well today, Willie, and believe it or not, it is actively snowing here, so I, I guess my heart is strangely warmed. Color me shocked. <laughs> Enough to make snow angels yet? I know that's your favorite craft hobby. <laughs> Yeah, in some parts of the yard you can, but it kind of was a little warm over the weekend and quite a bit of it melted away, so it's got to build up again a little bit, and that's what it's doing right now at the moment. It is rainy and, and wet here and overcast. Feels like I'm on a moor somewhere, uh, so that's <laughs> that's always nice. Had a lovely, this past Sunday, borderline sunny and almost warm, but... You know, you never know. It's early in the year. We could be due for one more good snow here as well. Only one? Only one. <laughs> That's why you'll never settle, you know, down this far into the into the new territories. Yeah, if half the year isn't snowy, I just don't know what to do with myself. So <laughs> You can't wear your bear skin. Why even bother going outside? <laughs> oh, good stuff. Right. Well, Zelman, this is going to be a... Fun episode, I think. We're dealing with fasting, and it's Lent, and fasting and Lent kind of go together, at least historically, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, historically speaking, the season of Lent was always understood as a fast. And so, yes, this is a very natural topic for this time of year. And, you know, maybe even if we don't observe it in the same way that it was observed in years gone by, you know, it at least is certainly timely. Certainly, yeah. It is more, though, than just a ceremonial part of the church year. Fasting is a discipline described in the Bible in many places for really many different reasons. It uh, It is actually kind of surprising when you go through and just look at how often fasting comes up in the Bible. Now, we're, we're used to living in an age where there's kind of this disconnect between the discipline of being a Christian and living out the Christian life and the confession of a Christian. We have in many ways forgotten that there is an actual, how would we put this, a disciplinary form to Christianity? Is that, is that, is that a, that's kind of a stark way to put it. But as Paul says, I discipline my body, that there is a physical aspect to Christianity as well. 
you very often talk about the mortification of the body, if you want to put it in even starker terms, you know, literally putting the flesh to death, so to speak. So, yeah, I mean, to be a Christian is to engage in a kind of discipline and and basically, when it finally comes down to it, engaging in a kind of self-control. Um, because if we aren't self-controlled, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit, then we are just giving way to our passions and running the risk of actually making shipwreck of our faith, right? Yeah, and I think this is this is a particular danger for us right now because there is kind of an idea among Lutherans, even certain Reformed and others, that the sum and substance of Christianity is merely professing right doctrine in and of itself. So that if I mentally ascend to the right proposition or quote-unquote rightly confess, then I get the gospel and everything else is just kind of whatever. And that's not really true. There can there can be no disconnect between what the Christian does and what the Christian believes, or at least there shouldn't be that disconnect. And really it does get into questions of, the old canard like gospel reductionism and in terms that we've historically used that is sort of related to this. But if one is going to confess the scriptures, which we do, and if one wants to be associated with the historic church, and I hope we do, then we are forced to admit that the mortification of the flesh is an integral part of the Christian life, and part of that has to do with self-discipline and with fasting. So when we talk about fasting, Zelwyn, what do we mean? Fasting in its most basic sense is abstaining for a period of time from doing something or partaking of something. In the Bible, that's most often used in terms of food, so that someone doesn't eat or doesn't eat certain kinds of food for a certain amount of time. And for specific reasons, it's not just for the sake of fasting, like if it was just a health issue or something like that, but it's always done for some greater purpose. And that's part of what we're going to be talking about here, like in this first section. So is, sure. that, is that a fair definition? Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, the, there's going to be all kinds of reasons, you know, fasting of repentance or fasting before travel. There's a reason. And then there is a general overarching reason for fasting that comes into the Christian church, and that is typically to not be mastered by one's, can I say passions? Is that, is that okay to say? I think that, so. <laughs> <laughs> that we're not going to let something have mastery over us. And so there's that spiritual kind of overarching component when it, when it gets into the Christian, the later Christian years. So, but, but the other stuff still plays a part. I mean, certainly in decision-making. I mean, you, you can even make a case that, that that fasting might have something to do with exorcism, at least in one example that our Lord and Savior gives. <laughs> so yeah, it's going to be... Uh, well, let's just see. Let's just take a look at some examples in the Bible and kind of go from there. Now, as we get through this, we'll look at biblical examples. We'll talk a little bit about the specifics of fasting in church history at different points. And so it won't... Th this. Full disclosure, this will not merely be a celebration of Zwingli eating sausages or anything like that. So I'm, I'm sorry. I just want to get the disappointment out of the way. And then we'll talk about some practical aspects there. So Zelwyn, where should we, where should we start in the Bible? 
Well, let's start with actually the the passage that you read as part of the cold open for our episode, which is Matthew chapter six, because I think this is maybe a good foundational text for talking about fasting in general. You know, our Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says things like, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who do it to be seen. But, you know, wash your face, oil your head, and go do it in secret kind of a thing. But I don't think we can pass over the fact that that Jesus says, not if, but when you do this, right? Because I think that's, the fact that he is suggesting that this is something that should happen is something that I think we have tend we tend to gloss over in the church today, right? You know, we right. we tend to think of it as being purely voluntary to the point of being like you you just never get around to doing it at all. I do think that our Lord wants us to fast. Now, the reasons for that is what we're going to talk about, but I think that that we should is a part of being a Christian. So then let's look at a few more of the biblical examples here then. So the what we have started is that we're expected to do it. Right. And nowhere in, in Matthew 6 does it say, you know, in, in Christian freedom, stuff your face. It just, <laughs> it simply says, it, it sort of expects this. We're kind of a long way away from the forced fasts of the Middle Ages in Roman Catholicism in the Western Church. Right. And that's going to be pretty important when we get to talking about the historical stuff. It's easy to, we, we want to read the Bible in terms of that period a lot. Mm-hmm. But let's take it from Bible to early church to Reformation era to today. So, all right. So we have it set up. We should do it. It's not a bad thing, but we should not make a show of our piety. Right. Right. All right. And also, you know, you're talking a little bit about the the idea of the forest fasts and the kind of ones that we're rebelling against. I think it's worth noting here too, just in passing that, the idea of a regular set kind of fast is also not unheard of in the Bible. You have a reference, for example, in Acts 27, verse 9, to the fast, which implies that it was a regular kind of part of the church year in those days, something that was normally done. And you also have a reference in Zechariah, chapter 8, of the fasts of the, what is it, the fifth month, the fast of the sixth month, you know, that sort of thing, being turned into feasts. So this idea of regularity in fasting, too, is a biblical concept. So it isn't just that this happens whenever, you know, this can be a regular part of our daily lives. We just have to understand the reasons why we're doing it. So why might someone do it in the Old Testament? Well, the biggest reasons for doing it, and probably the most predominant reason, something that maybe we should talk about a little at a little length here, is because we are grieving or we are in repentance over sin. We have done something to offend God, and as part of our repentance, uh, as, uh, we engage in fasting as well, as a way of disciplining the body and showing that contrition which we feel. Uh, you see this really in more places than I can even reasonably quote here. For example, in Esther, the, uh, the people, the Jews there are said to fast when they hear the news that is that they're going to be destroyed. You have Ahab fasting in 1 Kings 21 because, over his sin. You have Ezra fasting in Ezra chapter 9. You have Nehemiah fasting in, in 
when he hears the destruction of Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter one. I mean, all of there's there's so many examples of this repentance, of this sorrow and contrition over sin, and then we engage in fasting as a part of it. And that's one of the things that becomes a little bit troublesome for some Christians today. They hear this, and one, we've become uncomfortable with the concept of repentance as actual contrition and sorrow, because we are we have been overreacting to the abuses of, say, the Second Great Awakening, and we get a little worried when there's feelings of guilt or shame or whatever. But repentance is something that is demonstrated in the Bible. And how is it demonstrated? Probably through three ways. Prayers for forgiveness, fasting, and then, of course, amending one's evil ways to one degree or another. doesn't always go so well, but at least that's the intent. (laughs) So that repentance actually is action. And I know that that might make some people uncomfortable, but we have to deal with the text as it is. Again, we're talking about the Bible, the biblical witness that shows that it's more than just mental assent, the Christian life that is, and more than just saying words on paper. You must mean it. Okay. I know, maybe I sound like a pietist. Sorry, Zola. But you must actually (laughs) feel bad. You know, I mean, you're not going to feel the same way every week when you say, I, a poor, miserable sinner, but at least you should be cognizant of the fact that you're saying it and that it's true. Right. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. Well, what is sincere repentance? It is a turning away from sin. And we can get all fun with the word games there, but it's a turning away from sin. I don't know what else to do with that Uh, (laughs) and to keep the language alive. And then even in the Old Testament, there is a demonstration of repentance. And it is fasting in many, in many cases, in many cases. Well, you take, for example, a very prominent passage in the book of Jonah, for example, when Jonah begins to preach, calling for the repentance of the city of Nineveh, and then Nineveh actually repents. They turn away from their sin, and as part of showing their contrition, as part of showing their sorrow, the king of Nineveh commands a fast to be done. Okay, so, you know, this kind of collective fasting, too, it doesn't just have to be necessarily individual. It could be a whole group of people all together who are guilty of some sin in common fasting all at the same time. So, you know, this this idea of showing and amending and making a actual you know change in the way in the way that right. we do things. I think is right. very much a part of the biblical witness. Yeah, as well as as you mentioned, the precedent of a corporate repentance. Right. So so everybody's going to do this. Right. <laughs> insofar as they can. So these things are not unheard of. It's not like someone woke up in the Middle Ages and then just started telling people not to eat oil and eggs or something like that. <laughs> there are legitimate precedents here. The question just becomes of how legalistic do we want it to be? <laughs> and of course we don't want it to be legalistic at all, but at the same time we can't just wash away everything that's said here, as as we'll surely see. What then is the result of fasting that we see in some of these Old Testament examples? Well, I think in the positive examples that we see, you know, when the people turn away from their sin, when they call upon the Lord, when they fast and, you know, cover themselves with sackcloth and ashes, all of these sorts of, you know, outward shows of what of, of a change of heart. When it is genuine in the Bible, you do see 
the the Lord, you know, forgiving them, the Lord restoring them, the Lord bringing them back to the way things were, you know. And so we don't want to think of it as just some sort of hypocrisy, like it's only ever hypocritical. This is something that does lead to, like I say, restoration. It does lead to a change in their lives as well, right? Now, of course, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of places in the Bible, too, where you have hypocritical fasting, you know, where they're just doing it for the sake of fasting, or they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. But when Israel or, you know, when a believer fasts for a genuine purpose, especially in a case of repentance, to show their contrition, to have this outward change, you know, this outward demonstration of their inward change of heart, I do think that this is a God-pleasing thing. I agree. Can you give us a few examples of negative, or excuse me, a few negative examples? Of course, the famous passage in Isaiah chapter 58, you know, is this the fast that I command, you know, to do all of these kinds of things? Or you have Jeremiah rebuking the people in Jeremiah chapter 14, or, you know, probably even more famously for our listeners, the the Pharisee and the publican in Luke chapter 18, where the Pharisee boasts that he fasts twice a week as a way of showing how great he is before the Lord. Those are not genuine examples of repentance. It's really that hypocrisy. They're not repentant at all. So fasting without repentance is not going to make God forgive us or something like that, or show how great we are. Fasting and repentance go together so that fasting becomes an expression of it, of the inward change, which we, uh, which is happening, you know, when we're turning away from our sin. Yeah, no, I think that's very well said. So we have a lot of patterns established then. And does God seem to honor these fasts? Like what is, what is God's reaction to a a good fast? We'll put it that way. To a good, <laughs> to a non-hypocritical one. Good, right. Well, I mean, just look at Jonah again. The Lord sees the, the repentance of the people. He sees, you know, what they're doing. They're, they're good fast, as it were. And he, to use the language of Jonah, relents. I mean, we could open up a whole can of worms with that. But, <laughs> right. But, I mean, that's what the Bible says. You know, God did right. not do the, the, the disaster that he was planning to do to Nineveh because he yeah. saw their repentance. Right. It's a, so God actually does answer prayer. Right. And God actually does show mercy. That's what you're saying. It's in the Bible. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a tricky Bible, you know? Things become so much clearer when you just let it say what it says. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that is, again, the, these are our forefathers in the faith, these Old Testament saints who, who are coming to faith, and this is how they respond. Well, we're coming up on our first break. On the other side, we're going to find out if this is only really an Old Testament thing or if the New Testament has any more to say um, other than than just Matthew 6. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.com. 
www.ghostsofthecoast.org. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi, and we're talking about fasting. If you hear any crunching in the background, it's the sound of us stuffing our face with pork rinds and <laughs> and various other fried snacks in preparation for this episode. Bugles, <laughs> I think, was the joke from last time. So, Well, bugles would be Lenten. I think bugles are Lenten. I, I don't think that even even on Wednesdays and Fridays, I think you're okay. <laughs> Unless you stuff those little Vienna sausages in them or something. Uh, maybe. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so we've talked a bit about the Old Testament precedent set, but I do want to take a couple minutes uh, to again uh, reiterate that it is also in the New Testament. So we had Matthew 6, as we talked about for quite a bit, about Jesus saying when you fast, how to do it. But you do have references to fasting in the New Testament. You know, when the bridegroom is gone, they will fast, Jesus says in his parable in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Acts 27, when the fast was over, and there's a couple of other references to the fasts there. So you do still have fasting going on during the ministry of Christ and after his ascension. You still have fasting. And the question then becomes, okay, are they fasting for the same reasons? And in some cases, yes. In some cases, they're fasting for ceremonial reasons, but the ceremonial reasons are meant to point to something. There is a significance to them. But then you come to an example like Matthew chapter 4 with Jesus fasting in the wilderness. Now, this is a this is going to be big news to our audience, but our Lord Jesus Christ is sinless <laughs> with a blemish or spot. And uh, and so fasting for repentance doesn't really seem to fit with what happens when he is fasting in the wilderness. So we began to see then, not only in the wilderness here, but also in many other places throughout the Bible, that fasting is not necessarily connected with repentance. Although in our minds, it often is, simply because it's associated with a season like Lent, for example, in the Christian church. And so if we don't pay attention to the other parts, we might we might really miss out on a lot as far as fasting goes. So apart from repentance, Zelwyn, is there any use for fasting? Well, I mean, if you want to use the example of Jesus as an example himself, you know, that would be another way of showing that this is not just an Old Testament thing. You know, our Lord fasts, and so I do think that there is the continued emphasis on fasting in the example of Jesus himself. But the reason why Jesus is fasting, I believe, has to do with a connection to prayer. That as part of Jesus praying in the wilderness, as part of him undergoing these temptations, you know, and relying on the the Father through prayer, fasting is a way of, it's just part and parcel of, of prayer in this case. So it's not necessarily done in the sense of repentance, 
but it's really just done as to show dependence, to show a reliance on the Father, which is also a big part of prayer, you know, to show that we need God for everything, which is why we pray to him. And so fasting kind of emphasizes that. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want you to think of it as like you're getting a, a speed boost in your prayer when you fast or something like that, because that's not, <laughs> that's not the purpose of prayer or the purpose of fasting, but the two work very well together, right? Mm-hmm. Certainly. You, you have some Old Testament examples of this, David praying for his uh, child, which was born in 2 Samuel chapter 12, although God doesn't answer his prayer there. You also have Daniel, for example, in Daniel chapter 9, fasting as a part of his prayer. So this, this idea of praying and fasting going together, I think, is throughout all of Scripture. Can you think of other yeah. examples, Willie? Um, yeah, I think a good uh, New Testament example of this is when Jesus is when Jesus casts out a demon, and then mentions that some demons can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. Right? Does it actually say prayer and fasting? And it's Matthew. It says except by prayer and fasting, and I think Mark just says by prayer. But I don't think that's a I don't think that disproves anything. You still have prayer and fasting in Matthew. He says right. um, something like, because of your unbelief, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And then he says, however, this kind goes out except by prayer and does not go out except by prayer and, and fasting. But but then somebody's going to message us and say, well, then you get into some manuscript differences and it doesn't say that, but we subscribe <laughs> to the Textus Receptus here at Word Philly Spoken. So I'm going with it. Byzantine supremacy all the way. <laughs> but but because of that one verse, that one quote-unquote disputed verse, uh, you, you have seen prayer, fasting, and exorcism go go hand in hand. The priest doesn't like pop into Golden Corral before he shows up to, um, <laughs> to pray <laughs> for someone possessed. So I don't know. If you, if you don't think that's a good one, then you know that's fine. But we also have these myriad other examples of joining prayer and fasting. Well, I think I think it definitely works because when you're talking about casting out demons, and especially when the Lord's saying this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting, it really is emphasizing that in some cases there is such a dependence on God to do these things that we can really just only leave it up to him, which is what prayer and fasting are going to emphasize, this reliance on God in everything. So yeah. when you know when we pray and fast at the same time, it's just kind of a twofold way of showing the same thing: this dependence, this that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. To, right. to, to quote the Bible, and a, right? And it's an actual demonstration of it. I will prove that I don't live by bread alone by giving up food, right, uh, for for a period of time. Now, some of the biblical examples, I would say. Quite a, quite a few of them, at least, are probably impossible for us now to do. You know, Jesus fasting is, would you say, miraculous or only only possible oh, yeah. by virtue? Of, yeah, yeah. No, I I would say that Jesus fasting for forty days, you know, without food, is definitely not something that is commanded of us. I do think that there is a supernaturalness to it. I mean, you see the same thing happening with Moses on the mountain, right? In right. fact, I think he does it twice, if I'm not mistaken. 
fast for 40 days, breaks the tablets, and then fasts another 40 days. <laughs> right. Which, you know, that second one had to be rough. <laughs> and then even Elijah going to Mount Horeb or, you know, the mountain of God is said to go on the strength of that food for 40 days. So I, I'm not, Word Fitly is not recommending a 40 day fast with, you know, absolutely no food. That's, that's not what the Bible is suggesting right. at all. And certainly drink something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The point is, is, is not, the point is not to try to mimic everything you see here one-to-one, but to try to mortify the flesh as you can. Right. Whatever that looks like, it actually does really depend on the individual in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So Zellwin, any other biblical references we want to talk about, or do we want to look at how fasting developed uh, within the church? Well, I want to go through just a few more reasons for fasting real quick before we get into the historical stuff. Okay. There's a couple, there's, I see of about four more reasons, and again, these won't take nearly as much time, that fasting is done within the Bible. You sometimes see fasting done in periods of mourning or periods of great distress, like Hannah, for example, in 1 Samuel 1, who is fasting over her, this, over, in sorrow over her barrenness. You also have, in, in terms of this distress or this mourning, you know, other examples like in 1 Samuel 31, where they mourn over the death of Saul and they fast for a period of time after his death. So, you know, this idea of, you know, a sorrow, a, a feeling of sadness being a reason for fasting is also certainly biblical. Okay. Mm -hmm. A couple other good reasons for fasting, ones that I think are very interesting, would be on one hand, as an act of worship towards the Lord. Because Anna, for example, in Luke chapter 2, there's another good New Testament example for you, uh, is described as worshiping the Lord daily with prayer and fasting. So this idea that fasting can actually become an expression of worship towards the Lord, I think kind of permeates all of this, but we don't usually think of fasting in those terms, do we? Right. That's true. <laughs> I mean, because because we usually think of fasting as well. I screwed up, so I'm going to fast to show you know to to show my repentance kind of thing. But it could actually be a a very positive expression of worship. I mean, yes, repentance is part of that, and you know all this sorts of stuff. But this idea that she is worshiping the Lord by fasting, I think, is a little bit alien to our understanding. Well, yeah, I mean that's and that's kind of a a sad thing because we can think of a gesture like genuflecting. Right, you know, taking a knee or bowing as worship, or the sign of the cross as an element of worship, or any other ceremonial bit you want. You know, most people are at least comfortable admitting, even if they don't do them, that it's worshipful. Sure, but why not something like this? Why not something like like this kind of? Because fasting is a physical act, isn't it? Yeah, or perhaps right. lack lack of a physical act in some way, <laughs> if you want to look at it that way. Well, I know there's many people that I know of who, as a part of their Sunday worship, for example, will begin the day with fasting. You know, they'll skip breakfast until they have received, until they have gone to church and received the sacrament, or what you know, whatever the case may be. Sure. And I think that's a laudable custom. Obviously, it's not required Absolutely. to do that, but I think that's a good thing, right? Right. 
Although sometimes I think we should just require just something every now and then. Like I'm going to make you do this because it's good for you. <laughs> okay, we're gonna we're gonna announce the fast. We're all fasting for the next week. Yeah. Uh, Word fitly fast calendar coming next Lent. <laughs> <laughs> the Lutherans won't like it. Should be a lot of ginger ale and, uh, <laughs> and a lot of water. Water and ginger ale. You'll you'll be fine. Uh, yeah. No more beer fasts. <laughs> I do want to talk about one more reason for fasting that does occur in the Bible, and I think this is a very important one for us as well, and that is in the context of making decisions. And I don't mean like making decisions for Jesus or anything like that. I mean like decisions where an, you know an important choice needs to be made, then fasting as a part of preparation and prayer prior to making the decision, Okay. You see this the most clearly in passages like Acts chapter 13, as well as Acts chapter 14, where fasting precedes the choice of who to send out in the mission field, for example, or, you know, who to ordain or who to commission or whatever language you want to use. So this idea of I need to make a decision and therefore I'm going to pray about it, and I'm going to include fasting as a way of preparing for that decision. But that, again, that's something I think we don't do probably as often as maybe we should, or at least consider. Right, it. We, we we understand prayer, you know, over a difficult decision, but we don't really get the fasting part in there, although there is a biblical precedent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Ezra also, and Ezra chapter 8, when he's fasting during travel and the choices that he has to make during travel, I mean, it's it really is this, again, emphasizing the dependence which we have on the Lord and showing that in a very practical way before making decisions where, you know, we really need to call on him for whatever reason. So, like, ordination or, like, the mission or even just cases where we might be in some kind of danger. So mm -hmm. there's all kinds of biblical reasons for fasting is all I'm really trying to emphasize in this. It's not just repentance, but it has all of these other reasons which we see throughout the scriptures. What do you want to add to that, Willie? No, I don't have a lot to add. I mean, other than if this is something that comes up so often in scripture, and it is something that is so beneficial to the people, and so effective, if, if we want to say that, then why shouldn't we recover that? Why shouldn't we follow that example? And I don't think that we need to get this idea in our heads that, well, I don't have to do this, and you don't have to. I have to do a lot of things. But, but that doesn't mean that it should be totally neglected. And that's the attitude, and we'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about some of the practical stuff, but there is a lot... There are a common attitude that says, I don't have to do this. Like, yes, you don't have to. That That's why it's better for you when you decide to do it. Sure. That you, as a Christian, can do a good thing for yourself spiritually by denying yourself something. There is a lot about the Christian life that is self-denial. If we are followers of Christ... I would hope that we would want to emulate Christ as much as we can and not merely just take from his piggy bank, as it were. Because that's how we treat Christ sometimes. Oh, he was he was a great man, and he did all these good things for me, and so I'm fine. But, but the call of Christ is to not only receive 
grace upon grace from him and everything pertaining to salvation, but it's also a call to be like him and, and to and to do what is pleasing to God. And what are the two great commandments? To love God and to love your neighbor. And these are both forms of self-sacrifice. And sometimes our love for God is expressed in the fast where we say man does not live by bread alone. And our love for neighbor is expressed in denying or giving up some part of ourselves or something that we have for the sake of our neighbor. And so you don't have to give to the poor, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't, right? I mean, you don't have to do a lot of things in this life, but there are a lot of good things you don't have to do that you could do and you might derive some benefit from that as a Christian. And so am I saying now, oh, oh, well, they're going to say, well, Willie, you're, you're just saying that, that the Bible is, is a rule book. You're saying that Jesus is an example. I'm saying yes to both of those, that Jesus is an example and that the Bible does inform us in how we live, and it's not exclusively what the Bible is, though. So let, let's grant everything that we already know. We are saved by Christ alone, by grace alone. We understand that. But beyond that, then, what does that mean for the Christian life? And the church, in her wisdom, we have the Bible. We know what the saints of old did, and we see the good and the bad that they did. And most of all, we see Christ, whom we are called to follow. And what does it mean to follow him but to obey him and listen to him? Because the things that he teaches us are ultimately for our benefit, even though they do hurt in the here and now. Christ gives his all and submits to great pain, even to death, that the world might be redeemed through him. And so to go all the way back uh, to the first segment where we talk about mortification, okay, well, what, what what's what's at the root of the word mortification, Zellin? Death. Death, <laughs> right. So a little bit of us dies. Hopefully all of us dies, all the flesh anyway, and by God's grace it will in the last day. But, you know, this is this is all as we kind of begin to wrap up the biblical discussion of here are these great heroes of the faith who understood this and who understood the need to deny oneself in order to honor God, in order to show repentance, in order to show their own weakness before the things of the world. And so I think this is sort of step one of just a, a small denying of ourselves as step one in realizing that all good things come from God and that we would have nothing nothing without him. But we will talk about that a little bit more uh, towards the end of the episode. Zoan, any last words before we head to break? It's not a, an accident that Jesus describes following after him as taking up a cross. You know, if our experience as Christians, if following after Jesus is not characterized by that kind of self-denial, is not characterized by that kind of crucifixion of the self, you know, we need to seriously examine, you know, what is going on. To follow after Jesus, to deny yourself, to take up the cross is very much a part of what it means to be a Christian. And I think maybe listeners would be, you know, encouraged to go back to an earlier episode, which we did last year, when we talked about Christian discipline and this idea of Christianity being described in terms of, you know, striving and pushing and competing. And something that we don't often talk about in terms in, you know, nowadays, but it's very much 
you know, pushing forward towards that prize of Christ Jesus. Jesus has set us in the race, yes. He is the one who has laid the cross on us, but he's also the one that we are striving for, the one that we are pushing forward to. Amen. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, word fitly spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You are listening to Word Fitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi, continuing our discussion on fasting. So we've gone from the Old Testament to the New Testament, kind of back and forth. But after the Apostolic Age, we enter into the early church and then on. Zelwyn, should we talk about how fasting develops within the Christian church? I mean, I'm assuming you want to talk about how regular fasts become a part of Christian piety and kind of what it looks like? Is that what you're talking? Yeah. Yeah, because I know when our listeners might be familiar with some of these ideas of, you know, set fasts, like fasting twice a week, for example, typically done on Wednesdays and Fridays. You know, why, what, were the re- what was the reasoning of the early church behind that practice, Willie? <laughs> Basically, so Wednesdays and Fridays is fairly... Early on in church history, uh, chapter 8 in the Didache says that that fasts are not to be on the second and on the fifth day with the hypocrites, but on the fourth day in the preparation day. So Wednesday and Friday, worshiping on the Lord's Day, that's the Christian week pretty much because we don't want to worship basically like the Jews. I think that's right. that might be the, the most obvious way to put it, <laughs> that to differentiate ourselves from the fast days of that religion, the church early on adopted their two specific fast days. I think that's fair. I think it is. And I do think that, you know, sometimes, especially later in church history, you get the explanation that because Jesus was betrayed on a Wednesday and died on a Friday, you know, those those days kind of become... that That is correct. So early on, what you have is that shift as a move away from feast days of other religions, or excuse me, fast days of other religions. Yeah, but but relatively quickly, it gets this significance. And that's why you hear it called, you know, di- uh, by certain names. But yeah, Wednesday is when traditionally Judas agreed to betray Jesus. So that's the liturgical significance described to that day. And then, of course, Friday is the day he's our Lord is actually betrayed. And and so there, there you go. There's that. It, it, I think it's a development akin to the chasuble originally being just kind of an outer cloak, right? And then it has some 
significance to it, or the past the detachable clerical collar originally just being a collar kind of turned backwards. <laughs> so later on, it'll get some symbolic significance attached to it, and that's fine. I think that that's fine to attach some kind of teaching meaning to it. But but Wednesday and Friday, very early on, becomes the norm. The church begins to adopt a calendar very early, and this is not surprising coming out of Judaism. That really shouldn't shock anyone. Right. Uh, I, I think even among Lutherans and people who ought to know better, there's an idea, kind of a Campbellite, or a, maybe even a landmark Baptist idea of the early church that just isn't there in the historical record that the early church is practicing regular holy days essentially from the beginning. And that did include fasting. So it wasn't just everybody sitting around on lounge chairs and sofas and (laughs) drinking gourmet coffee and rapping about Jesus, that there is a, a, a very structured worship life in the early church and fasting was an integral part of that. And I think I think it's worth pointing out there too that even when the church rhythms, you know, the the worship rhythms, the the order and the structure weren't all that elaborate yet because there is certainly more that will grow out of this. You do see this idea of the week, you know, from Wednesday and Friday and Sunday kind of being the way that you structure the week very early on. And so that Easter becomes important very early. The idea of uh, Epiphany becomes important very early. But this idea of structure and order and fasting being a part of that structure and order is a very early Christian idea, right? Yeah, right. And it seems natural to them, and it seems foreign to us. So it's natural to the people closer to the writing of the scriptures and closer to the events as described (laughs) in the New Testament. But I'm I'm sure we've got it figured out, though. And the, are are you arguing for the consensus of the first four centuries now, Willie? But, well, <laughs> no comment. No comment. No, so yeah. anyway, so what we do have though is, and maybe down the road we'll do an episode on the on the Didache, the Didache, so I can actually unpack who exactly they're talking about in the fasting sections and in others, just so there's no confusion. Right. So, uh, but th- that'll be on down. Um, eventually. You see the rise of monasteries, which practice a more austere form of fasting. And then you end up with things like the Black Fast, uh, which is sort of the ideal (laughs) fast for a lot of church history. And so let me kind of fast forward to today, say in the Western Church, in particular in the Roman Catholic Church, fasting, especially in the United States, is not that difficult. You know, there's, if I'm not mistaken, there's only two obligatory days of true fasting in the Roman calendar now, and that's Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. The days, the Fridays of Lent are days of abstinence. So you can pretty much eat what you want, just eat a little less and no meat. Right. Okay. So that's where we're at now. But at least up until the 10th century, you had the Black Fast. Eastern, and, you know, Eastern fasting is, is similar to this. What do you what do you mean by the black fast? Well, I'm I'm, get, okay. I'm getting there. You got to got to wind up for this one. So, <laughs> so basically, basically, no more than one meal per day. Flesh meat, eggs, butter, cheese, and milk. That is dairy for you, Wisconsin people who are listening. Is verboten, so forbidden. I 
don't think you can eat after dark in the black fast. No alcohol, apart from the you know, apart from what's used for the Eucharist. And during Holy Week, you're pretty much eating bread and herbs, salt, little water. So that's the black fast, and that's similar to what you have in Eastern Orthodoxy today. The ideal then is to avoid pretty much all flesh meat throughout Lent, for example, or Great Lent as they call it. Now, off the top of my head, there are four fasting seasons in the East are Great Lent, Holy Week, Nativity, Apostles Fast, and the Dormition Fast. So a big chunk of the calendar is fasting in the Eastern Orthodox churches. And and it's meant to be something more akin to this black fast. Now, do most of the people perfectly fulfill these obligations? What would your guess be? Uh, I'm going to say no. <laughs> no. no. And I, and, and I do want this to be very clear because we do get kind of a wrong picture of, of fasting throughout church history in both the West and the East. But when you're looking especially at the Eastern version, which is rather strict, they understand that this is kind of the goal, but you might not make it. If you've got to eat a can of tuna, just eat a can of tuna. There's no, there, there has always been exceptions There's for pregnant women. Okay, they're not, ex- they're expected to fast, but not this kind of extensive fast. Children, the elderly, the sick. So there is grace here. It's not as if there's some bearded monk, uh, you know, standing over your shoulder and, and flicking your ear every time you, you know, throw a piece of cod in the oven during Lent. That's not <laughs> how it works. And I'm not trying to make light of it, and I don't think they're trying to make light of it. It's just to say that it's a discipline, and it's not something that one can just simply do. And it's not meant to be easy, unless you're the 1960s Roman Catholic Church. Right. In which case, it's pretty easy. Well, but, but, and, I, and, and I do want to make light of that. Well, no, <laughs> I do actually do. That's fair. <laughs> but before we go on and talk about Roman Catholic practices and maybe kind of more modern suggestions. I do think it is interesting that the things that they are kind of normally forbidding, like in the the ancient fasts and the medieval fasts, would typically have been the kind of richer, more expensive, kind of wealthier foods. Yes. It is probably easier for a medieval peasant to fast Mm -hmm. than it is for us today. Right. Because, you know, we don't we don't think anything of buying meat, although meat seems to be getting more expensive lately. You know, we don't think of anything of buying milk or eggs or cheese because these things have become very cheap for us. They've almost become staples. But in mm-hmm. in those days, those would have kind of been the, the more luxurious, even kind of like just rich kind of foods. And so to give those up for the average, say, Christian medieval peasant really wouldn't have been that big of a sacrifice. He, he wasn't getting these sorts of things regularly anyway. <laughs> Right. I mean, they might miss them, but it's not this this dependence right. that we would have. You know, border, borderline addiction. Right. And so, so maybe the post-industrial society hasn't been the best uh, for Christians, <laughs> Zelda. I hear a ringing in my ears, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> if I get tackled and dragged out before the end of this episode. Exactly. You know, you know set up a GoFundMe, please. <laughs> but uh, anyway. But you're absolutely right. That's a that's a, a great point that we look back on this and kind of sneer at it, but it is in some ways an indictment upon us. Now, all that said, you go all this time without these foods, and it is uh, it's certainly more meaningful 
certainly taste better after you've not had them for a long time. Sure. So experientially, there's something there. Um, you know, these things, these strict rules don't apply for people who are given food in charity, of course, or people who live in countries where food is scarce, you eat what you can get. The The church has never been been quite as legalistic as with some of this stuff as what we wanted to make it out to be, at least in certain areas. Now, what happens is, is that you do get the more Western style where it becomes easier. And as the restrictions become easier, it becomes less fluid. It becomes stricter and becomes more legalistic, I would argue. Well, we've reduced the qualifications just to not eating sausage on Wednesday and Friday. So don't eat that sausage and you're good. See, that's not the same. That's not the idea. That's not mortification of, of, of flesh. That's checking off points in a box. Right. And so if we've done it that way, then we've probably missed the boat. And that is how it began to develop in, in the West. And maybe um, maybe a way of putting that very practically, you know, if you're the way that you're approaching a fast is okay, I'm not going to eat eggs or whatever because Lent. That's really not the best mindset to go into it. Because then you're just making it an issue of, as long as I'm not eating eggs, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and therefore I'm keeping a fast. But that's but the yeah. Bible doesn't present fasting in that way. The point is not that you're giving up a certain class of food. The point is that, I think as you alluded to earlier, you're not allowing something to have dominion over you. Right. And I think in modern Roman Catholicism, the idea still persisted that you eat less, and so the money you would save, you should give to the poor. I mean, there's still this sacrificial idea, but it's really not what is emphasized overall. Right. <laughs> and, and, and the discipline side, I mean, an all-you-can-eat fish fry is just does not seem in the spirit of Lent, although it's delicious. <laughs> although last Lent, I did get food poisoning from fried fish on a Friday <laughs> in Lent, and it really got my noggin jogging. <laughs> you know, I never believed in Jew and Jesuit um, assassins uh, more than I did in that 72 hours. So, <laughs> but, but yeah. And, and, and so, and not to just beat up on, on Rome, but we do kind of follow their lead. So by the time you do get to the reformation, you have Zwingli's great stand where he eats his sausage. Like now you're just kind of making the, now you're just doing the opposite error. You're, you're not, now, now you're not boasting publicly in your discipline. You're boasting publicly in your lack of discipline. Right. But I get what Zwingli's point was and what he was trying to do and show his freedom. But my question to us today is, are are we really in that same situation? Right. Most Lutherans today were raised in the Lutheran church. A, A concept of forced fasting is just not something they've ever had to deal with. There are people who had obligatory abstentions put on them who were raised Roman Catholic, who then join the Lutheran Church, so perhaps they feel the sting more, and I respect that. But for most, uh, for many, many Protestants, this is just not something, they, they can't pretend as if they feel oppressed by the Roman Catholic Church when it comes to this. And, and so you get the idea then that has that is prevalent, that fasting, because it is not obligatory, then it is not, you know, it's not necessary, so it must not be very important. Right. The Christian life then just becomes enslaved uh, uh, to flesh, and then we become Greeks or something. No, <laughs> uh, not Greek Christians, but Greek uh, 
you know right 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 right. greek Greek pagans because yeah because this is the thing and and i and i don't mean to be too provocative here but our bodies will die our flesh will decay and luther did call his body a maggot sack and that's cute but uh your body is made by god and your body ought to be treated with dignity, and your body is part and parcel of what it means to be human. Christ does not come in spirit to die to redeem spirits. Christ comes to redeem men who are body and soul. And so the incarnation shows you that the mortification of the flesh is important, that our body is important. Paul says, I discipline my body. Why does Paul say that he disciplines his body, Zola? So that, I mean, to put it even his stark terms, to make it a slave so that he would not be disqualified. Disqualified, yeah. yeah. Now think about that. <laughs> I discipline my body so that I might not find myself disqualified. Paul is not uh, boastful, is he? He recognizes what needs to be done to the maggot sack, as it were. But it needs to be killed in a way, but that also implies it needs to be resurrected and, and redone. And God, of course, does that. But we have fallen into this trap, though. And we don't realize it, that the incarnation is important because the body isn't important. We're happy Jesus came in the flesh, but that has nothing to do with my flesh after all. Uh, So just by all means, do whatever you want with the body. It's not important. And so I think that puts us spiritually in a dangerous place. And maybe I'm making too much of that distinction. But when you would ask a question like of of a lifelong Christian guy in his 50s, Maybe even a pastor, you know, what What do you think about fasting? Well, no, I'm not Roman Catholic. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> That's not good. You've ignored a lot of the Bible now. It's just, it's it's dangerous. And can you look yourself in the mirror and can you look in society and actually say that men are not ruled by their passions and vices? Uh... <laughs> And <laughs> I mean, I think, unfortunately, that's become kind of the dominating tone of our time. I mean, we're and we're not just talking about in terms of those who have no faith, because obviously they're going to be ruled by their passions. But I mean, when right. the Christian, for example, glories in this kind of, I don't know, lack of self-control, this idea, uh, you know, because I'm setting myself against what I perceive to be the opposite error— you're not confessing the truth because you're falling into the opposite error. You know, we right. are, as the Bible tells us, the temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And I would add that in the Bible, when Jesus is called a glutton and a wine-bibber, that that's a false accusation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like I've heard that cited. Well, that's what they called Jesus, so what do you think he was doing? Well, he wasn't doing it. That's, that's, the, that's the whole point. People are liars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so again, we go back to this. Are you free to be a glutton? I suppose. Although uh, it's still a sin. <laughs> you know? Are you free to be a drunkard? I suppose that's still sinful. You know, you're free to enjoy alcohol, but you're also even more free to abstain when it's best to abstain for the sake of your brother, perhaps for the sake of yourself. I think, is, isn't it written somewhere that all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable? Isn't that... I've heard that somewhere, Willie. Well, you're not letting the gospel predominate, so <laughs> Remember, that's, you know, that's a... These are epistles. Yeah, now. exactly. We all, the gospels must... The gospels, you know, contradict the epistles, or so I'm told. Or something. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just it's just silly. We, we need to take the Bible in in 
in toto and, and then see what, what the church did with it. This is not to be legalistic. And this is not to say you have to do it this way or you have to do it that way. But you can't divorce the discussion of fasting from the discussion of the mortification of the flesh. And, and we have wrongly, wrongly told ourselves and been taught that the gratification of the flesh can just be filed under first article gifts and that that's fine. You could enjoy food. It's a gift from God. And believe me, I think the people who do the black fast really enjoy those gifts of God when Easter rolls around. Sure. You can enjoy these things. You can eat a steak in the middle of Lent and you know not stumble. That's not what we're saying. But whether it's food or... I can't even think of other vices all of a sudden, whether it's food or, or drink or, or, or entertainment of any kind or, or sex or clothing or whatever, shopping, whatever you want to put, whatever arouses those passions, those are the things that we have to be on guard against because those are the things that rise up within us and can pull us down. Those are the temptations that can rise up within us and pull us up by the root, or, or that's what Satan can use to pull us up by the root, as it were. You know, it's a... The world is not a pleasure palace for Christians. There is no Christian hedonist. Sorry, John Piper. I know what you mean, buddy, but pick another term. There isn't. And if we can delight in food, and we can, if we can delight in all these other gifts, and we can in their proper perspective, how much more can we learn to delight in God alone and in that relationship that we have with him? And we do that okay, by pushing back those sins, those temptations, the passions that arise within us. I think you've made your, your point very well, Willie. You know, this idea that, you know, as long, the, the point of all of this is to show that dependence which we have on God and not to glory in our freedom or to glory in license or something like that, but to show that in those moments when we deny ourselves even what is lawful, we are showing that we are still looking forward to something which is, in fact, greater. That these things, as pleasurable as they are, as wonderful as the good things are, they too will come to an end. And they too will eventually give way to a joy which will be far greater than anything we can possibly imagine. So when we give these things up for a time, you know, deny ourselves even what is lawful, we're not doing it to show how good we are. We're not doing it to show how holy we are. We're not even doing it to show, show ourselves before men. We're doing it because we are called to follow after Jesus, who gave all of these things up. I mean, you know, Jesus, who didn't even have a place to live, for crying out loud, who gave all of these things up for our sake. Right. And all of it leads to the Lamb's Feast in his kingdom which has no end. So the even greater and better feast is indeed yet to come for the Christian. Well, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. God love you and God bless. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. 
and when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God.